0: How to Play, episode 42, Aura et Labora. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more how to play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Hello listeners, thanks for tuning in. This is your host Ryan Sturm and today we're going to talk about Aura et Labora, and this episode is being recorded on November 11th, 2012. We'll get to that in just one minute, but first I want to recognize the sponsors for this episode, which are the fine folks from my homeland, the Midwestern United States. We have Jeff and Michael from Iowa, Tim, Craig, Dwayne, Chris, Nicholas, Glenn from Illinois, Jay, Nathan, Kevin from Indiana, William from Kansas, Karen and Alex from Michigan, Kelly from North Dakota, Ron, Michael, Patrick, and Harold from Ohio, Lee and Timothy from Wisconsin, and my brethren, Brendan, Timothy, and Roger from my... My birth state of Minnesota, rah-rah-rah for Skayuma, go Gophers, keep eating that wild rice, my friends, where all the men are strong, the women are good looking, and all the children are above average. That concludes uh, my recognition of the the over 100 supporters from our six-month fundraiser drive. If I, for some reason, missed you, just drop me a note, and uh, I'll be sure to get you in there for our last episode of the year here. Now let's get to Aura et Labora. This game was designed by Uwe Rosenberg, who is of course known for Agricola and Lahav, also Bonanza. This game was released in the year 2011. It plays between one and four players. I really like it with three or four, but you can play it with two or even as a solo game. What is there to love about this game, Aura et Labora? Well, this is another game in that sort of Rosenberg franchise I guess he's developing now, which started with Agricola and continued with, with Le Havre and Lo Yang, where, you know, you get... 37 different kinds of goods you buy buildings to turn those goods into different goods and and to turn them into points and as such honestly when this came out I wasn't terribly excited to play this one as it you know just from brief lookings at it 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 just seemed like another game just like Le and Agricola and I love those games why do I need another one well I hate to tell you but you probably do need another one. If you do like Agricola and Havre, you're you're going to love Aura at Labora. And that is because of two major elements that are added. One specifically. The specific element that's added that makes this a special game is the geographical element that is brought into the game. You're not just buying buildings anymore. You're buying and placing them on a specific spot on a map. And that location, unlike in Agricola where you, know, you do build fences and houses And it kind of matters But it's not really that important In in this game it is a lot more important Because there's specific requirements For what land it has to be built on Uh, There's specific places you want Close to each other And ones you don't want close to each other And that element really adds another level To these other games Uh, You know the same concepts that are brought on But he just kind of layers on this, This additional level Which makes it a lot of fun It actually brings it closer to its progenitor Game, I guess, which is Roads and Boats. Roads and Boats had this sort of goods upgrade sort of game system puzzle, but combined with that was the logistics of getting the goods from place to place. Well, in this game, you know, you get those buildings and you upgrade those resources, but you also have to pay attention to those locations. We talked about this uh, about how much I love these geography elements in games. On a Ludology episode recently, the episode was called You are here, so I would encourage you to go check that out for, the, for further discussion on that. The second element that is layered onto this system is the managing of, of three workers and how you have to place these workers and uh, time them so that they reset so that you can use them when you want to use them, and, and that timing element is interesting as well. Another thing that's really nice about this game is two scenarios of the same game come in the box. There's a, a France version and an Ireland version, and they are 80% the same, but the, each one has a, a little bit of building variations that just adds a good amount of variation to the game. So if you played one of those a lot, I think it would get really samey and it's just nice to have two different options, so all of that, having the two different scenarios, having the geography all of those things really warrant having a a third game in this system I I think it's right up there with Agricola and Lahav, you know they they both satisfy, the three of those games satisfy different itches, and so I really encourage if you like Agricola and Lahav it's very likely you're going to love this one as well so, what's not to love about it? Who won't like it? Well, if you don't like Agricola and Lahav, you're probably not gonna like this one. If you don't like Euro games, probably isn't for you. You know, it's a game one of those games with um, you know twenty different goods. If you don't like resource conversion. If you want more of a direct conflict game, you don't like puzzly-type games, then you probably are not going to like Aura et Labora. One other thing I I must be honest with you and say that I do not love about this is I don't think that they did a, a real great job with the production. I think it's an okay production, but there's some things there that leave a little bit to be desired, especially at the $70 list price, which is a really hefty lift price. I really expect top-notch components, and there's a few things that I'm missing in this game. The player boards that you use, and you use multiple... Of these boards and you put them together they're on this flimsy cardstock that you can't really put together nicely They really should be on sort of standard cardboard board boards and not be um, Bendy cardstock then they provide player aids, which are nice But they're on you know pieces of paper that are not even cut you actually Probably want to cut these and laminate these which I just feel like I shouldn't have to do those extra steps when I pay this kind of price for a game of course, this game has what I'm calling Hobbit cards, and these cards that are the size for Hobbits, and that's specifically annoying because you really need to read what your opponent's cards do across the table. Now, there is a, a gameplay reason for that because you use these cards to sort of build your landscape, but still, I don't think that these cards need to be as small as they were. They probably couldn't have gone with the, the full size, but... This, these small small size cards for you know the importance of knowing what their function is, it's really frustrating to have to pick them up to walk across you know you really have to walk across the air side of the table to read them and, and it's just a big pet peeve of mine. And finally the counters aren't really punched out that well. There's a lot of tearing going on. It seems like a few corners were cut or I guess the problem is some of the corners weren't cut <laughs> Oh. But if you're charging 70 MRSP, I want 70 MRSP quality. That's what I'm saying here, I guess. Complexity rating. This game's a double black diamond. Uh, The the first game is just going to be learning. Players will probably be a little bit overwhelmed because there's like 20 different resources. There's like 15 different buildings for them to read. And every several few turns, like 10 more buildings comes out. And they really have to navigate you know, what all those resources are and what they do. You know, what are all those buildings and what are some paths that connect some of those different buildings, the different landscape types. There's really a lot going on in this game. So this is a gamer's game. The first time you're probably going to make a bunch of mistakes. And the second time you'll probably be able to play it w- with some more strategy. So let's get started into this. If you have the game, take it out, look over the things as I describe it to you, or check out some images online to help give you a visual as we get started. Here we go! Without further ado, let's get to the Hook! Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Ora et Labora, which translated from the original Latin means prayer and work. You are in charge of a cloister of monks, and it's your job to develop the surrounding countryside so that you have the most well-regarded cloister in the country by scoring the most victory points to win the game. In this game, you'll be collecting resources and using those resources to score victory points by purchasing building cards and then using those buildings to convert the basic resources into resources that are worth victory points. On your turn, you'll use your buildings to collect resources, or you'll purchase new buildings, and the buildings allow you to collect more resources, or to convert the resources that you have into more valuable resources. At the end of the game, victory points are scored in three major categories, and the victory point symbol is easily seen with the symbol of a golden shield. First, you'll score points for all the building cards on your countryside by counting up that total on that shield. Then you'll count up the victory points you have obtained from valuable items that you've collected. The resources that are worth victory points are holy items such as wonders, ornaments, and reliquaries, as well as if you manage to produce beer or wine or whiskey, as well as large sums of gold. So you want to buy buildings, you want to get these fancy resources, but the third way that you can earn victory points is through the construction of settlements. Five times during the game, players are given the option to build a settlement card on their countryside, which you will almost always want to do as these settlements earn you a large number of victory points. Players spend their resources to place down one of several settlement card choices onto their countryside map. The settlements earn points for itself, but as well as for each orthogonally adjacent building equal to its dwelling value shown in a red house. Now, some buildings, like the library, offer a very high dwelling value because your people want to go to the library. Whereas others, such as the slaughterhouse, offer a negative dwelling value for obvious reasons. So your job is to collect resources, then to use those resources to buy buildings so that you can get more resources, more valuable resources, and more buildings. But you also want to strategically build your countryside so that you can place your settlements right in the middle of those desirable buildings so that your settlements score you the most points. After 25 rounds, the player who scores the most points by having the most valuable resources, buildings, and settlements will win the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So let's get started by looking at what you can do on your turn. The nice thing about this game is that your options on a turn are really straightforward. It's just determining which of those makes the most sense you're basically going to take one of several resources or use your resources to build buildings. Let's look at how you do those more specifically. First of all, using a basic building. The players start with three basic buildings. A barnyard, which they could get sheep or grain, clay mound where they can get clay, or a cloister office where they can get coins. Now let's say you wanted to get clay. You take one of your tokens. There are three tokens. These are your clergymen. And one is different than the other. The the fancier looking one with the little hat, he is the Prior. And the more basic pawns, those are simply the Brothers. You're going to take one of those tokens. You usually want to use the Brothers and save the Prior, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But you're going to want to take one of those Brothers and put it down in the building that you want. So if you want Clay, you'll put him down on the Clay Mound. Now you get to take clay resources. How many do you get to take? Well, you get to check the Wheel of Production. If you're familiar with uh, Agricola or Lahav, then you're familiar with the concept of resources building up in a stock area and then players choosing to take all the resources in that stock area. Well, this game basically works the same way, that the longer players don't take something, it builds up more and more. Instead of having it in a spot on the board and you placing tokens into that spot, The accumulation of those resources is represented on a wheel. All of the tokens start on that first space of the wheel. At the beginning of the round, we rotate the wheel one space. And so all of the resource tokens are on the wedge that is marked with a two. And so that means whenever anybody takes one of these basic actions to collect a resource, they'll get two of those tokens. So if I take that clay action, I'm going to get two because that's what it says on the wheel. At the beginning of the next round, and this is after everybody gets a chance to take their turn, and this is a round, not a turn, then we're going to rotate the wheel at the beginning of that next round. Now you'll notice that the sheep token is on the three wedge, so someone taking sheep will now get three because someone hasn't done that for a while. And some of the other resources will be only at two. So that's how the production wheel works so say going back to that clay action i want to get clay i put my guy on the clay mound i look at the wheel it says two i take two cardboard clay tokens and put those in front of me and then i have to take the clay wooden token and slide it down to the zero wedge meaning anybody else this turn who wants to take clay this round they're out of luck but next turn it will go back up to two So there's one of these wooden tokens for each of the different resources. And there's also an orange square. And this orange square is the Joker token. And the Joker token you can use For anything, if I want uh, clay or coins and that Joker token is up really high, like up at four, then I could use that Joker token to get four. So always look for the one that you're going to take, and also look where the Joker is. And if the Joker is higher than whatever you're trying to get, you should probably use the Joker so that it makes it harder for the other person that they can't use that Joker tile. But the, the Joker token makes it a little easier gives a few more options if one person denies you you still have the possibility of using that joker so that's how the basic buildings work if you want sheep you put your token on the barnyard you take your sheep resources you move the sheep token down to zero that's it that's your turn next let's look at wood and peat your starting board as I said it has these three starting buildings on it it also has three forest cards and two peat cards in order to get those, uh, that wood and that peat, you need to cut down the trees or the peat. That works a lot like using those basic resources with two differences. First of all, you don't have to put a, a clergyman onto that forest or that peat. This is important. I don't know, you have like servants or somebody who cuts the forest and the peat. So instead of putting a man on that card, you just simply remove that card and that has a couple important effects. First of all, it opens up an empty space where you can place a building, and second of all, you have a limited number of resources of those forests and peat, and once they're gone, they're gone. So those are the basic ways you get resources. You you put your brother on the thing that gives you the resources. You'll have the token symbol on it. For example, for the grain one, it has the little yellow grain token, and that prompts you to look up at the wheel, see what the wheel tells you for how many resources you get, move the token down, and there you go. For wood and peat, you remove the card on your board, and then you simply take the resources. You also, for those cases as well, you move the wood token down and you move the peat token down to zero as well. You just do not have to place a clergyman. Instead of taking resources, and after you do this a few times, you'll want to build a building. The building resources in the game are wood, brick, stone, and straw. Most commonly, the wood and the brick. At the beginning of the game, there will be something like 8 to 12 buildings out there that will be available to be built, and you'll want to look at how much those cost to build, and at their effects. Luckily, there is a a nice player aid that goes over the costs and the effects of all the buildings that are available. Now, if you want to build a building on your turn, all you do is you make sure you have the right resources, you pay those resource cardboard tokens into the bank, you take the building card, and then you place it onto your play area. Let's talk about what you've got in front of you. You start the game with a 5 by 2 grid. Three of them are covered in forests, two with peat, and then those three starting buildings. And you have two empty sections where you can build those buildings. You can place those buildings down. And if you've cleared out some of that forest or peat, that'll open up some sections for you to place your buildings as well. When you put your building down, it's got to be empty, as I said. And then also, some of them have requirements for where they can be placed. This is nicely indicated by the color of the building is the easiest way to tell. It's also in the upper left-hand corner. If they're just a normal green color, you can build them anywhere. Except on a mountain. If it's a light green, they have to be built on a hillside. If it's a brown, they have to be built on the coast And if it's gray, you have to build them in the mountains. At the beginning of the game, you only have plains terrain, but you'll be able to get those other terrain types later in the game. Next, if the building name, the banner is in yellow, then that means that it is a cloister building, and as such, all the cloister buildings have to be adjacent to each other you start the game with a cloister office that's where you get the coins and there is one spot there adjacent to it so if you build that yellow one you're gonna have to put it there unless you you open things up a little bit on your board the last thing you need to pay attention to is be thinking about where you're going to put your settlements. Remember, about every five turns or so, you're going to have to put down a settlement, and you're going to want to have that settlement be adjacent to the other buildings that have good dwelling values. You're going to want to look at those buildings and see which have those red houses that have high numbers on them, and be planning for where you're going to put those settlements when it gets to be that settlement phase. In the rules, there's a recommendation that I actually really like. It says that, you know, if you have a plan, you could take that settlement and actually put it face down on that uh, rectangle where you're planning for that settlement to go and, and place the resources of, of that you're saving up for that settlement so that, y- you know, you have a visual of what you're planning to do. So start thinking about that as soon as you start building buildings. But wait, that's not all. Remember how I was talking about that prior, the guy with the funny hat? He has a special ability. He says... I like to use buildings. And if you have him sitting around, you can get a two for one ability. After you build the building, if you have your man with a silly hat who says, I like to use buildings, you can put him down and immediately do the effect, effectively getting two turns for one and you want to do this as many times as possible so the trick is not only do you have to build up enough things to build the building you also want to be prepared to use the building immediately and have the man with the silly hat ready to go and then you'll be playing this game a lot better because if you have to build it and then wait to the next turn to use it you've effectively wasted a turn. But that's what you do on your turn. As I said, if you boil it right down to it, you're simply either taking resources or building a building. And if you're doing things really well, then you can build the building, use the guy with the silly hat, and use the building right away. But that's the basics of what you do on your turn. But there's a few other things that you can do on your turn. One of the other things you can do is you can use the other player's buildings. You can pay them to have them use one of their pawns so that you can use their building's ability. Now, the tough part about this is that you have to pay them a coin, and coins are really hard to come by. But you should really pay attention because there's a lot of times where this is a very good move. Instead of simply using one of your own buildings, if... if got a really nice building and you've got coins sitting around you can get to do it and force them to use one of their guys they get to choose which guy to use so if they have a, a normal guy they'll use that guy but it's really nasty when you can force them to use their guy with the silly hat or more importantly their last guy so that they don't have any guys to use Alternatively, if you have a wine or a whiskey, which are really hard to get, but if you have one sitting around and you want to use that instead, you can get their brother drunk, and you can use one of their buildings, and instead of paying them the wine and the whiskey, the brother drinks it and it disappears, and then you laugh in a not-very-Christian way. Ha <laughs> And then you get to use their building, force, uh, force them to take one of their guys and put it on one of their buildings and you get the effect. There's one special building in each variation. In France, it's the winery. In in Ireland, it's the whiskey distillery. Once someone purchases that, it doubles the price of forcing another player to use one of their buildings. And the start player token actually has a coin on it. And when someone buys that particular building, you flip it over and it has two coins on it. And that reminds people that the price has gone up, which encourages them to use the wine and the whiskey instead. The other thing that you can do is that you're going to run out of room. You're going to want more countryside so you can expand out. To do that, you have to pay coins. There are two different land tiles that you can buy. You can buy another 5x2 grid that has uh, plains and hillside on it, or there's a 2x2 one that has coast on one side and two hillside and a mountain on the other. And you might want one of those because there's some real special buildings that have to be on the coast and in the mountains. And the 5 by 2 one even has two choices as well because if you flip it over on one side, there's more of it covered with forests and peat, which can be nice because you could need more of those resources. On the other side, it has more of those areas uncovered to start with, which is nice because it gives you more building areas immediately. And then what you're going to do is you're going to place that tile adjacent to your starting tile. And if you picked the longer one, you can put that above or below your starting region. If you chose the the mountain tile, you're going to put that to the right and you can put it up or down wherever you want adjacent to that starting tile. And if you pick the coast, you're going to put it on the left and you can, again, you can place it up or down wherever you want. And you're going to connect those in this way. So if you buy more coast, you're going to put it above and below the coast. If you buy more mountains, you're going to place it above and below the mountains now one thing about this land is that there's only a limited amount of land and because of that a really nice mechanic in this game is that the price of land goes up there's two stacks of these one for the normal land and one for the smaller one with the mountains and the coast and they go in price from two dollars to like seven dollars and the first one is cheap it's only two coins and then the next one is three coins Uh, there's two at three coins the next one is four coins so the first person to sort of invest that money will get one cheaper and as you go throughout the game they get more expensive you can buy these anytime you want on your turn and don't forget that sometimes if you've got coins sitting around you're going to want to do it before the other people do before it gets more expensive the last thing you can do on your turn is there's some resources that convert for free the wheat can convert to straw you simply flip it over the wheat is worth food, but the straw is, can be used for fuel. It's also used for building some of the buildings. Also, there are tokens for single coins, and there are tokens for uh, five coins, and you can freely change you know, five singles for one of those special five coins, of course. As well as the wine and the whiskey, you can you can trade those in for coins because you can see there's an icon on there that they have a value of coins. So basically, you can turn those things into those equivalent resources anytime you want to. Now let's get into the full flow of a game round. Alright, so the game is timed over 25 game rounds, and the timing is, is actually shown by this wheel. After each of these rounds, you're going to move this wheel one step. The game goes over five settlement phases which are marked on the board with an A, B, C, D, and E. You're going to go around the wheel. It's about two times that you're going to go around this in the full game. And when you pass that letter E, then the game is over. The flow of these game rounds is a little bit odd. It takes a little while to get used to, and I'll explain why here in a second. The first thing that happens in a game round is if you have played all three of your clergymen, the two normal guys and the guy with the special hat, then you get to take all those guys back. And that's important because then you can use them. Then you'll move that production wheel one spot, making the production of everything go up to at least 2, and anything that hasn't been used will be higher, like 3 or 4 or 5, even later in the game. The next time you build a settlement will be marked with a blue house, and if you pass that, it's after about the 6th turn or so in the beginning of the game, then you stop and everybody can build one of their settlements, pay the resources for that, and then you'll continue play but after you do sort of those startup things for the round then you're into sort of the the meat of the round how it works is Everyone takes one turn and then the start player gets to go again. So if you had four players, it would go one, two, three, four, one. And then you would be done. Uh, you, you'd move the wheel, you'd get guys back. The next round would go two, three, four, one, two. And then the next round would go three, four, one, two, three. And just keeping track of whether it was your first action or second action. And you really just have to p- pay close attention to that flow to make sure you know. Who's the start player and is that their first action or is that their second action? So why? Well, that's a really good question and a question I spent a long time thinking about. Why didn't everybody just get one turn and then you move the start player? Well, it has to do with the timing of how you use these little clergymen is one of the most important things. If you have a turn where you're the start player and you only have one clergyman, well, you're going to have to be really careful because you have two actions and there's not a lot you can do without uh, a clergyman. So you just need to be careful about that. But remember, everybody gets one turn then the start player goes again. And then you're going to pass that starting player token. You're going to reset your guys if you used all three move the wheel Uh, you'll stop if you pass the blue house if not you'll keep going everyone will go once starting player will go again move the wheel repeat and that's the flow of the game really pay close attention so you don't get lost next let's talk about that settlement phase So when you cross that blue house, then it's time for everyone to build settlements, and this works pretty simply. First thing you do is you move the blue house to the next letter. So if you just pass the A, you're going to move the blue house to the B, and that's going to mark when the next settlement phase will begin. Then players will choose and build one of their settlements. You really want to plan for this to gather enough resources to play one of your available settlements. At the beginning of the game, everyone has four of those settlements to choose from for that A phase. The difference between the different settlements is how, much, how many resources they take to build, as well as how many points they score you. And typically, uh, the more expensive they are in resources, the more points they will be worth. The resources you have to spend to play these are fuel and food. And so you need to be careful to collect enough of these so that you're prepared to go the basic resources you're looking for to build them are the fuel you'll probably use mostly peat and maybe some wood and the food you'll probably use livestock or processed livestock the meat or maybe some coins you can use those so you're gonna have to build up enough of those to pay for one of these settlements before you place it every player may buy a landscape and you may want to do that you may want another tile so you have a good place to place this settlement if more than one player wants to do that you have to do that in turn order because Someone might have to pay more money. Another thing to be careful of is these settlements also have uh, landscape restrictions. There's one of the starting ones. The fishing village has to be built on the coast, and it's a brown card to remind you. And then later on in the game, you could build this awesome hilltop village that's worth a ton of points but that has to be built on the hillside and that can really mess you up if you forget that so don't forget to look at that requirement then after all the players have chosen their settlement to build or forfeited that choice which is a very very bad thing don't do that then we get some new buildings and new settlements after each of the A, B, C, and D phases, we're going to get four to eight more common buildings that are they're going to come out and be available for anyone to buy. That typically will give a little bit more powerful abilities as the game goes on. In fact, as the game goes on, some new resources will become available, such as the grapes and the stone. And that grape token and stone token, they actually go on the track at specified times that's marked right there on that production wheel uh, to sort of match when the buildings come out that allow you to get them. Also, everybody has an an A, a B, a C, and a D settlement. So when you pass the A settlement phase, you're going to pass out one of those A cards to everybody or you know what everyone can just keep them in their hands so they know what's available and then in the first building phase you just cannot build the A and then once you get to the next phase you can build any of the starters or the A and the B the C and the D as the game goes on you get those more expensive and also settlements that are worth a lot more points that uh, players can plan to build too but that's how the settlement phase works you should have saved up some resources some fuel and food so that you can place one of your settlements and have a nice spot saved for it, so it can, it can be adjacent to places that are have a lot of those dwelling points, a lot of those red houses, so it can be worth a whole ton of points. You get new buildings, and everybody gets a, a new settlement card to start thinking about. And then that's it. And then you continue with the flow of the game, which goes starting player gets one action, everyone else gets an action, starting player gets another action. Turn the wheel, go ahead and continue until you get to the E which means the end of the game. So the last turn works a little bit different. This is kind of like Lahav for those of you that have played it. Everybody just gets to take back their priors for free. All the players can take a final action to uh, build a building, and then since they have their prior, they can immediately use that, that building. Or they can use any building on the board, and if you want to use your opponent's building, you don't have to pay for it. So it's like one final action, either one that's out there or one that you want to build. After all the players have done that, then you're going to do a final settlement phase, just like the other ones. You're going to pick any of those settlements you have left and play it to get the most points possible. And then it's the end of the game. There's a little score sheet there for you. There's three main categories of points, and typically uh, players get about a third of their points from each of these. First of all, the resources that are worth points. The holy items and the, the wine and the beer and the coins are worth points. So, you know, that's something that players can really focus on, trying to get a lot of those resources that are worth points then we have the buildings Uh, all the buildings on your on your player board there have a a yellow shield victory point value and you're going to total all those up and finally your Five up to five settlements. You count the dwelling value for the settlement itself as well as all of the orthogonally adjacent settlements. And so you total all up to five of those up. And, you know, you'll get somewhere between 20 and 40 points for each of those things. Winning scores, you know, somewhere around 90, 100, something like that. And the player with the most points will be the most well-regarded cloister in the country and win the game. three the hamster how to win the game all right so let's talk a little bit of strategy at the start of this game it can seem a little bit overwhelming as there's so much to take in i would advise you just to look at the buildings that are available and start by targeting that look at how much it costs and just look at getting those resources to build that first building that you want to build uh, be careful of someone else getting the resources for the same one and building it before you that's that 's always good advice in this game if there 's one that you want to build and you see someone who has the same resources you got you gotta get it first. The second thing is, is as I alluded to earlier, is you have to plan not only to get the resources for building that building, but you're also going to want whatever you need to activate that building and get that man with the silly hat, the prior, so you're all set to go. So you can build it, put your guy on it, use it right away, and have the things to use it. So a lot of times, some of these things convert different things, so you're going to need the, the cost to build it, as well as the thing that you're going to want to convert, and the prior also, set to go it's sort of a lot to get all set up but it is it is worth the payoff the next advice i have for you is to be careful on managing your clergyman. is an important part of the game setting up for we talked about that man with the silly hat making sure he's ready to go when you need him but one of the trickier parts is when you're the first player being careful that you have enough men if you only have one man uh, you really have to think through how you're going to do that so that you you can get the things that you need. Uh, an important rule is you can't do a whole lot if you don't have a clergyman. All you can do is cut trees, cut peat, or build a building and not use it, which is never really what you optimally want to do. You can't always use your opponent's guys, but of course that costs you a coin. But... Keep that in mind as a a nasty tip for getting in your opponent's way. If your opponents don't have a clergyman, they can't do much either. So it may be a good little strategy to uh, use up your person's last man if they have a turn coming up. So you're going to sort of ruin their plan, especially if you can get their prior from them when you can tell they're all set up for their big turn to uh, buy and use a building which transitions nicely into not forgetting to use your opponent's buildings that's an important part of the game if someone built that building that you wanted well that's really sad but remember it doesn't stop you from using it as long as you have some coins the next thing is to really plan out You know. From the get-go, all along, you got to be thinking about where do you plan to put those settlements? You know, a nice thing to do, you, you can have them close to each other so they can feed off of each other. But a checkerboard pattern is something that's nice to try to pull off as well so you can sort of double get the value of of these really nice expensive uh, buildings that score you a lot of points. So really be thinking ahead about five or six turns. All right, my settlement's going to go here, so I'm going to want to put this building here and that building there. Plan that out in advance. Some of the considerations as you work through your games is there's some different strategies. Uh, there's, There's two different directions to go. The hillsides go to the right. The coasts go to the left. Uh, As you play the game, you're probably going to want to go one way or the other, or neither. You may focus just staying on the middle and not worrying about those hillsides or coasts. Or you may say, you know what? I'm going to be the the mountain guy, I'm going to get the quarry, and I'm going to make that strategy work. Or play the other way, say, you know what, I'm going to be the coast guy, I'm going to get the fishing village, get all those things on the coast side of the board. Another strategy is to play cloisters or no cloisters. Those cloisters all have to be adjacent to each other, so you, you may decide to go heavy cloisters, meaning you you clear out a lot of space so you can get a lot of those nice cloister buildings adjacent to each other. Or you might say, you know what, I don't care about those cloisters. I'm going to build all the things that aren't cloisters so I don't have to worry about that adjacency thing because it's kind of a lot of work to get those things next to each other. And then don't forget about those three major categories of points converting into resources that are worth points. Specifically, there are these wonders that are worth 30 victory points. And they're really hard to get as you have to cash in like everything to get them. But they are worth 30 victory points. So that might be your goal. Say, you know what, I'm going try to try to get one of those wonders. Or say, all right, I'm just going to try to build buildings and build lots of buildings. Or focus on, I'm going to try to make settlements that are worth a whole lot. I'm going to build a lot of settlements and I'm going to build a lot of buildings that are worth a lot next to it. You're probably going to pick one of those paths to focus on a little bit more, but you kind of have to do all three. It's just sort of more, which one of those am I going to focus on a little bit more? So that's a lot of decisions to make. Uh, coast, center, or hillside. Cloisters or no cloisters. Go for wonders, uh, buildings, or really valuable settlements. How do you decide which of those to do? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Do what the other players aren't doing yes if you see some people go for coast go for hillside if you see no one going for cloisters be the cloister guy that's going to make things a lot easier as you go throughout this game But you can see all these different elements and considerations that make this such a fun game. I hope you enjoy this along with Mr. Rosenberg's other fine games. But Aura et Labora is a worthy addition to his oeuvre. Who knew a game about work and prayer could be so much fun? Part 4 Footnotes. All right, that's about it. You know, there's a few different options when you play this game. There is a short game for the three and four players. And how that short game works is the wheel is altered by having free resources that everybody gets every turn. Which kind of feels like cheating to me. You know, it kind of kills that narrative arc. I feel the same way about the short version of Le Havre what fun is it to to start the game with a whole ton of stuff but I guess that's just my opinion it's an option there for you if you want it the France and Ireland map if you're wondering which one to play first I'd probably recommend the France first but to be honest they're they're very similar it it doesn't matter that much there's a two-player game the two-player game has to have some some rules modifications to make it work so be sure to to check those out and as is standard in uh, these Rosenberg resource games, there's also a solo game that uses some dummy player rules. So if you're looking for another game for your, your solo game selection, this may be a nice addition. But that's about all I've got to say about Aura and Labora. I want to once again give a special shout-out to my friends in the Midwest, especially my, my Minnesotan countrymen, and I hope you enjoyed this one. It really is uh, another fun exploration into resource management. Just when you think you've had enough of, of converting you know, wood into to victory points, Rosenberg finds a new way and an interesting way to do it. So I, I hope you check that out and enjoy it. But I'm going to shut the lights off on the How to Play Studios for this month. Look forward to a, a highly requested game. Coming up hopefully in December. So I'm sure you'll look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Stern of the How to Play Podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network. The premier board gaming media network featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. A final note about something that's written in the rules that that really just kind of exploded my brain. It says, for all the extra components, you don't have to sort them. Just put them in a pile. It won't slow the game down. What? Are you serious? Don't sort them? How can I not sort them? There's, there's green ones and there's orange ones and there's, there's red ones and I just want to put them in stacks and put them in neat piles. And then when I'm done, I want to put them in, in neat piles again and put them back in the bags. But, you know, when I think about this, it's actually quite revolutionary. Why am I unsorting them and then we use them and then we sort them again, and then there's just this endless process of resorting. If there is a pile and I need two wood and I could just look for two brown pieces, I could just find them. And then I could just take all of those cardboard pieces and I could put them into one bag. That's really something to consider. Um, I may have to reconsider the 407 bags that I used um, to sort in the Year of the Dragon. I I don't think I'm strong enough. I don't think I could put all of those different colored chits into one bag, and I don't think I could sit through a whole game seeing those chits, all of different colors, in one large pile. I think I would be compelled to sort them. I think maybe if I had a unsorting mentor that I could call on the phone and, and ask what I should do, I see the pieces and I want to sort them, and have some support, I, I think I could get through that, but um, it's really a nice idea in theory, uh, but uh, I, don't, I don't know if I, I'm honestly capable of such a thing.